Nicola asks about Nathaniel Brandon. What are my thoughts on him? And she started listening to his lectures, The Basic Principles of Objectivism, and to her knowledge, so far, they're good. What happened to his views on objectivism after the fallout with Rand? And if he was a star student, how could he abandon correct views? Uh, out of personal spite, or maybe that's not what happened. I think that he was never all that great. I think it's easy to overestimate how much people know and to not see all of their errors, especially for people of goodwill and good faith and who have a hard time understanding how irrational everyone else is, which I think is a problem Rand had. Rand overestimated a lot of people like Alan Greenspan. And I've overestimated people as well. Because you talk to people and they seem to know something and it seems good. And then later, as you talk to them more, you find out like bad things and you find out they were lying to you for years or, you know, things like that can happen. Um, uh, You can also overrate potential. Because it's not like Rand looked at Brandon and thought, okay, he's as good as me. He knows everything I know. He's the same as me. It's not like that. She looked at him and thought, you know, maybe he knows 50% of what I know. And he's learning more, and he can teach some of what he knows. And so you put those things together, and it's pretty good. But in that case, you're looking partly at his potential, and you're hoping he'll improve in the future and catch up to you. You're not just looking at his current uh, views and accomplishments and ideas, which you know are imperfect. So I think Rand knew that he had flaws. And she was hoping he would make progress and continue to correct his flaws. Like, when she met him, he had more flaws, and then he fixed a bunch of them. He got better. He made improvements. He made progress. Um, but she knew that he hadn't made all the progress. He wasn't all the way there. So then what happens is there's a pretty common pattern where people, they make progress for a while, and then they hit a hard part, and then they get stuck. And some people go a lot further than others. So let's suppose Brandon got 75% of the way there before he got stuck, which would be uh, exceptional, you know, far better than almost everyone. That would really impress Rand. Um, but she might not understand the stuckness. He might not either. They might think, well, he's made so much progress, he'll probably get over the way he is now stuck. Or they might not even realize he's stuck. They might think he's still making progress when he's actually been stuck for a year or two. Because he's, uh, he's doing, you know, some pretty good things, writing some things that are okay. But he's not actually, like, fixing the core problems that are keeping him from the rest of the knowledge. Or another thing that happens a lot is people lie. Um, usually to themselves, not primarily to other people. So it's not like I think he was intentionally lying to Rand about his philosophical knowledge. Um, that's possible, but I have no knowledge that that happened. Uh, rather, he would be lying to himself that he's not stuck when he is stuck. He would be hiding the problem from himself and... When people start getting stuck, they usually start getting dishonest about it. Um, as soon as the rapid progress starts getting harder and their progress slows down and they get confused about some things, and then often they start being dishonest about it. They start rationalizing it. They start making excuses rather than uh, finding ways to redouble their efforts and finding new ways to make progress. It's like if their old methods of making progress don't work, generally they give up and they're dishonest about it. 
rather than them learning whole new ways to make progress. And then what happens is they're not stable at what they learned. It's not like he learned 75% and he couldn't learn the last. Ah. It's not like he learned 75% of objectivism and or of what Ayn Rand know and then could not learn the last 25% and then just stayed there at knowing 75% as much as Ayn Rand. Um, even if he got that far, it wouldn't be a stable state that he could just stay at and then teach the stuff he does know and don't teach the stuff he doesn't know. Talk about this part, the three quarters he knows, and don't talk about the one quarter he doesn't know. It doesn't work that way. Um, he doesn't totally understand like what he doesn't understand, what the limits of his knowledge are. He makes mistakes there, and there's dishonesty there. And then on top of that, rationalizations and lying like snowball. It gets harder and harder to maintain them, and you have to like rationalize. Uh, first, you like rationalize why you haven't learned a certain thing, and then you rationalize like why you haven't worked on learning that thing for the last month. And then someone criticizes what you're doing, and then you rationalize that criticism, and it gets worse and worse. And you get more and more complex uh, systems of lies that have to work together to support each other. It's, it's basically, once you accept one contradiction or you're dishonest in one way, that is poison, and every idea it connects with, um, it can poison that idea. Because if you accept like one one terrible idea and then you see that it contradicts one of your other ideas and then you change that other idea because you're keeping the one bad idea as like your constant that you'll never reconsider, um, then it can make you change some of your other ideas to be bad. And then those ideas connect to other ideas so then you change the next layer of ideas and it can spread and spread. So if you're making important mistakes, that's not a stable thing where you just live with it. It is a... It is an active problem that can spread and get worse. You can't just compromise and ignore the problem. Um, it's like what Rand talks about. I'm going to go find the quotes. Okay, this is from Rand's book, Capitalism, the Unknown Ideal, Chapter 14, The Anatomy of a Compromise. Rand says, and if you don't understand this, you should read the whole essay, but hopefully you're familiar enough to understand this part. Uh, three rules. So one, in any conflict between two men or two groups who hold the same basic principles, it is the more consistent one who wins. Two, in any collaboration between two men or groups or two groups, two men or two groups who hold different basic principles, it is the more evil or, or evil or irrational one who wins. Three, when opposite basic principles are clearly and openly defined, it works to the advantage of the rational side. When they are not clearly defined but are hidden or evaded, it works to the advantage of the irrational side. So this applies not just to two men or two groups, but to inside one person's brain when they have two ideas or two sets of ideas or two ways of thinking or two philosophies, anything like that. So a conflict inside one man between different facets of his personality or different groups of ideas or whatever when they hold the same basic principles, the more consistent one wins. That doesn't apply to the part where Brandon is getting stuck and he's being inconsistent. Okay, and so then in a collaboration but with different basic principles, the more evil or irrational one wins. So that is one of the things happening with uh, Brandon in the story I outlined, which is primarily a, a hypothetical story about what can happen, how these things can work. Um, it's not really about Brandon personally. 
But anyways, just assuming that that story happened, using him as a maybe example, there would be in his head these ideas about philosophy, which are trying to collaborate, but they hold different basic principles. Some of them are irrational, and that's why they're stuck. Some of them have some sort of major flaws that are preventing them from making progress. Um, and then there's like the good part of him. So there's the part of him with like the bad principles that can't learn. And then there's part of him with the good principles that do learn. And so to the extent those two parts of him try to collaborate, the more evil or irrational one wins, it spreads, it gains power, as Rand explains in the essay. And then the third one, when opposite basic principles are clearly and openly defined, it helps the rational side. But when they're not, it helps the irrational side. So that also would apply because if the person's being dishonest and evading the problem, then that is going to help the evil, bad one quarter of them rather than the good three quarters. So that helps explain how that can happen and what goes wrong and how it can get worse over time. Because these three rules Rand gives, they don't instantly happen. They're uh, you know, tendencies over time that it'll develop in that direction and there's reasons it will but it doesn't just happen all at once automatically. So that gives some idea of how a star student can go wrong. And I think that has happened with objectivism, with fallible ideas, and with other stuff like critical rationalism. So other questions, my thoughts on Brandon. I know several bad things about him. Um, but I'm not familiar with the basic principles of objectivism. Um, I saw that it came out in 2014, so it's fairly recent that it was made available. Like, I realize it's older, but it was only recently published, I guess, is what it looked like. So I bought the Kindle version so I could uh, skim the text. I read, like, a little bit. It looked okay, maybe. I don't know. Like, I couldn't really tell. I didn't find something awful right away. Um, so it looked interesting enough that I'm going to read more of it and see what I think in the future. Uh, not necessarily soon, but it's on my list. However, for someone uh, who is less of an expert, I would warn uh, substantial caution about Brandon and probably read a lot of other things first and have a lot of discussions about them, like discuss like actual Rand books before risking this Brandon stuff that could mislead you. Because um, I think... There's a danger that has some bad ideas that will be like sneaky and plausible and uh, trick you and cause problems. And uh, note that this is being published by the, the David Kelly people and their allies, I think, who are uh, enemies of ARI and objectivism. I'm not going to go into Kelly, but I'll say that uh, you, can, you can read Peacock and Kelly's dispute and see what you think. And when I read it, I thought Peacock uh, made more sense and had better arguments. I'm going to double check that actually. Um, that the, the Brandon stuff is Kelly associated. Because I saw it was on the, the Alice Society YouTube, I think. I'm going to double check that as well, because I checked that like half an hour ago. Okay, yeah. The YouTube is the Atlas Society YouTube. And then 
Yeah, the Atlas Society found was founded by philosopher David Kelly, according to Wikipedia, in 1990. So yeah, it's it's Kelly aligned stuff. So you have to be careful with that stuff. Um, and now I'm gonna go over some specific problems with Brandon that I know about. So I'm not just gonna warn you against him. I've got I've got a bunch of details. I found some old emails about him. Uh, but first we'll start with uh, Thomas Saws has a book called Faith in Freedom. And it criticizes some libertarian type thinkers uh, for being bad on psychiatry and being hypocrites. And there is a chapter on Nathaniel Brandon. There's also a chapter on Ayn Rand, which I think is flawed. Um, so I'm not endorsing everything this book says. I agree with Saws's views on psychiatry. But I thought that some of his analysis of some of the people was not correct. Uh, a lot of it was, though. But anyways, um, I don't know of anything wrong with the Brandon chapter, but I also uh, have not read Brandon's books. So I, I think this criticism has a lot of potential. And anyways, I'm going to read from the conclusion. And by the way, the book will be linked in the show notes, and so will the other uh, sources that I bring up next. So from the conclusion, I'm going to read two paragraphs. In Judgment Day, Brandon approvingly writes, one of the most important tenets of Ayn's philosophy, the foundation of her political theory, was that no individual and no group, including the government, has the moral right to initiate physical force against anyone who has not resorted to its use, end quote. Making a psychiatric diagnosis that justifies involuntary mental hospitalization is an instance of initiating force against a person who has not resorted to its use. To be sure, the psychologist or psychiatrist is like the judge who issues the order to incarcerate rather than like the police officer or hospital attendant who escorts the convicted defendant slash committed patient to the prison or mental hospital. If Brandon believes that, quote, no individual and no group, including the government, has the right, has the moral right to initiate physical force against anyone who has not resorted to its use, end quote, then he should have denounced all coercive psychiatric and psychological practices. He has not done so in the past and is not doing so now. And for context, you should be aware that Brandon uh, knows about Saws, has read some of Saws' books, um, has commented on Saws publicly, and is a psychotherapist. So he's involved in this in, in this field. Um, this is not like something he neglected. Um, it's not like he's spending his time being an economist. You know, this would be less of a fair criticism of an economist who just said nothing about psychiatry. This is uh, relevant to Brandon. And he's just being a hypocrite and uh, he's in favor of initiation of force on psychiatric grounds, I think contrary to his principles. So he contradicts himself. There's something really bad there. All right, next up, there's the whole Passion of Ayn Rand thing. So there's a book called The Passion of Ayn Rand's Critics, which criticizes the whole Passion of Ayn Rand thing. And there is a fallible ideas discussion topic about this with a bunch of posts. The first post is by Alan Forrester, and I'll link that one, and then you can find other posts after it. And he read the book and started the thread, and I'll say a few things that he says. So 
reading Allen. Brandon claimed he had doubts about Rand's philosophy, but nevertheless chose to promote objectivism for over a decade. Brandon was also involved in publishing The Objectivist and writing articles for it. He was supposed to contribute the same number of articles as Rand, but he couldn't live up to that. He claimed he wanted to have sex with Rand. Uh, then he lied to Rand a bunch, uh, had sex with someone else, and yeah, told a bunch of lies. Uh, you can read the thread for details or the books. Rand uh, gave Brandon outs, which he then, he kept lying. He rented office space in the Empire State Building for the Nathaniel Brandon Institute with over 20,000 borrowed from the objectivist without Rand's knowledge or consent. So Alan says that Brandon was effectively a con man stringing Rand along so he could afford stuff he wouldn't otherwise have. Alan says Brandon's subsequent criticisms of Rand are an attempt to solve his conscious conscience as much as possible by denying lots of Rand's philosophy like the need for moral judgment. The most interesting part of the book is the second part with a bunch of journal entries Rand wrote. Yeah, I read some of those. I thought they were interesting. Um, if you already know a ton about objectivism, so you want details like this. Um, if you don't know a ton about objectivism, you know, read Rand's books first, stuff like that. If you do know a ton about objectivism, I'd recommend that you uh, look into this stuff before reading Brandon, so you have it in mind while reading Brandon, if you're going to read him, and you you have the option to choose not to read him or to only skim or something. All right, so Brandon wrote an essay called Benefits and Hazards, which we'll have a link. Uh, wait, I'll get you the full title. The Benefits and Hazards of the Philosophy of Ayn Rand, colon, a personal statement from 1984. By the way, one of the issues with Brandon's behavior and stuff is he waited till Rand died to say a lot of stuff so that it couldn't be challenged. That's something I remember that I thought was really important and bad. And I note that the date here, 1984, if I remember right, that's a little after Rand died. Oh, it says it was first delivered as a speech in 1982. All right, when did Rand die? Uh, Rand died March 1982, and he gave this speech in May 1982. So he waited two months after she died to give his speech on the benefits and hazards of her philosophy. Uh, so I think there's something really bad about that, and I don't think that's a coincidence, and there are, there are other things that he did of a similar nature. So Brandon says, 
In other words, anything that challenged her particular model of reality was not merely wrong, but, quote, irrational and, quote, mystical, to say nothing, of course, of its being, quote, evil, another word she loved to use with extraordinary frequency. So statements like that make me think that he's kind of anti-objectivist. So that's the kind of thing that uh, is why I haven't been very interested in him, because I think he just doesn't like significant aspects of objectivism, doesn't agree with objectivism. Um, he complains about Rand encouraging moralizing. Another aspect of her philosophy that I would like to talk about, one of the hazards, is the appalling moralism that Ayn Rand herself practiced and that so many of her followers also practice. I don't know anyone other than the church fathers in the Dark Ages who used the word evil quite so often as Ayn Rand. So I'm in favor of her moralizing. I do not agree with him, and I do not like this sort of insulting uh, approach he's using that is not substantive criticism of specific quotes of things she said that were mistaken. Oh, wow. All right, here's a paragraph. Like many other people, she was enormously opposed to any consideration of the possible validity of telepathy, ESP, or other psi phenomenon. The evidence that was accumulating to suggest that there was something here, at least worthy of serious scientific study, did not interest her. She did not feel any obligation to look into the subject. She was convinced it was all a fraud. It did not fit her model of reality. When an astronaut attempted during a flight to the moon to conduct a telepathic, telepathic experiment, she commented on the effort with scorn. Even the attempt to explore the subject was contemptible in her opinion. Now, I have no wish to argue in this context for or against the reality of non-ordinary forms of awareness or any other related phenomena. That is not my point. My point is the extent to which she had a closed mind on the subject, with no interest in discovering for herself why so many distinguished scientists had become convinced that such matters are eminently worthy of study. So I take from this that Nathaniel Brandon is a gullible fool uh, who has no clue about science or and can just be fooled by snake oil salesmen and frauds. Like, ESP tele telepathy? Come on. Um, he needs to, like, watch James Randi and uh, read some, like, books on skepticism and stuff. Um, Rand was completely right. He's wrong to criticize her for this. Uh, so now reading an Allen email... Oh, wait, this email's private. I can't read it. I'll just find the same part in the essay that he was talking about. Okay, there's a section called Encouraging Repression. So, yeah, he accuses Rand of encouraging repression. So again, I think he's wrong. I think that's bad. So I'll link the essay if you want to look at it more. All right, now here's uh, one more email. This one's public. This is from Kate Sams, and she's quoting from Honoring the Self, the Psychology of Confidence and Respect by Brandon. And uh, the reason I think this email is interesting is it has uh, quotes that Kate found relevant to taking children seriously and parenting and stuff. 
So I'm just going to read some quotes that Kate found from Brandon. Uh, None of the foregoing is offered as an argument for giving a child unrestricted freedom. Children need limits. They need guidelines. So he's anti-freedom and anti-reason and awful, in my opinion, which I've explained and argued elsewhere. Uh, C.E.G. My essay on taking children seriously on the Fallible Ideas website. So Brandon goes on, they need them for security and they need them for survival. Um, I think that refers to guidelines and limits. Teachers and parents who refuse to take a stand on anything with children refuse to uphold any values or convey the notion that all moral principles are old-fashioned or irrelevant do not do their children a service. Hey, this seems to contradict what he is. He is attacking Rand for moralizing, but now he's like, you have to beat morality into children. Moral principles aren't old-fashioned. And I say beat because he's... He's advocating the use of force, like restrict your child's freedom, uh, make him listen, limit him, use guidelines. How? You know, force. This is not an optional thing for the child. You know, if it's optional, that's not a limit or guideline. Uh, Guidelines can be optional, but like, he's not talking about optional ones. He wants the parent to impose guidelines that the child has to follow. And some of those are related to moral principles. So that's moralizing, and it's not just moralizing, it's forcing your morality on other people. Whereas Rand Rand moralized in a uh, as speech, as persuasion, as trying to convince people, you know, with reasoning, not as something she forced on people. You could decide she was mistaken and not listen to her. Whereas Brandon wants this done to children in a way where they can't just decide their parent is wrong and not listen. Uh, continuing the quote, he says, adults do possess greater knowledge than children. The question is, how is this knowledge to be transmitted? One can teach with respect or one can teach with intimidation. One can speak to a child's intelligence or to his fear of punishment. So Brandon, this is super contradictory. He's saying, you know, use respect, not intimidation. Appeal to the child's intelligence, not fear. But he's also saying impose limits on children. Don't give them unrestricted freedom. If they have restricted freedom, that means you're using some intimidation instead of respect. It means you're not relying on appealing to the child's intelligence. It's partly punishment. You know, where are those limits coming from? You're going to punish the child if he doesn't follow them. If you're appealing and speaking purely to the child's intelligence, then there would be no limit on the child. Um, He would just listen to the extent he was persuaded. And he might not listen, so he might violate the desired limit. So, uh, quoting more Brandon, one can offer a child reasonable choices within sane and comprehensible ground rules, or one can lay down the law as is done in the army. So, that means one is laying down the law that the child has to pick only the choices the parent deems reasonable. That there is some set of choices, and the parent says, you can pick between these, but nothing else. And the parent lays down the law as is done in the army to force that on the child. Brandon is totally unaware that he's advocating force against children, against a minority group which has been heavily victimized and has low power. And that's who he wants force used against. And final quote, one can accept a child's making mistakes as a natural part of the growth process, or one can inculcate a terror of mistakes by reacting with ridicule or harsh punitiveness. But he advocates reacting with ridicule or harsh punitiveness if the child goes outside of what he considers, quote, sane or, quote, reasonable. 
he's saying, you know, the child can make mistakes within a certain range of ideas that he considers acceptable. But if the child goes outside of the box, then that is no longer acceptable. And he no longer is accepting of the child's uh, mistakes, or I would call it the child's ideas that he regards as mistakes. So this is all very gross. So these are some of my reasons for Brandon's skepticism. With that said, I'm still going to look at his book more. Um, I don't have very high hopes for it, but um, I'm interested enough in the topic to, to check it out further. But I, I would generally recommend other people do not look at it unless they've really mastered uh, other more reliable material by better authors, especially Rand. And that mastery involves not just reading Rand, but discussing it and, you know, asking a bunch of objectivists, do you see anything wrong with my interpretation of this passage? Uh, here's what I think Rand's getting at here. Does anyone disagree or see it differently? And you do that a bunch of times on a bunch of different objectivist forums, and then you get an idea of whether you've understood Rand correctly or not. And I would uh, encourage people to include one of my forums in the, the list, because I think it has criticisms you won't get elsewhere. And only after you've, you've succeeded at understanding a, a great deal of Rand um, and actually checked your understanding would I think it makes sense to read Brandon.